Thank you for listening. Visit www.cityhillglobal.com to find out more about City Hill Church. But today, I really want to look at the kind of pre-build, if you like. They're not at the wall yet. They're not building quite yet. In chapter 1, we don't see him building at all. This is pre-build, if you like. And what I want to look at is three aspects of Nehemiah's character. I believe in chapter 1, we see three aspects of Nehemiah's character that really come across quite strongly, in fact. I believe they're three key ingredients for anybody who will build the kingdom. City Hill, if we're going to build the church in this city, we need to be builders, builders of the kingdom. And we're going to look at these three key ingredients for any kingdom builder. Number one, Godly concern. Nehemiah had godly concern. Number two, he had godly confidence. And number three, he had godly conviction. And at the end, we're going to look at how. How do we get those characteristics in our lives as builders? So we pray as we start. Why don't you just ask God right now in your seat to speak to you, to challenge you as, as individuals, as a family. Let's ask God to speak to us and challenge us corporately as a family of God this morning. Father God, we thank you that you are about building your kingdom. Your kingdom has come, your kingdom is coming, it is growing, and you are using us to build. Thank you that you, Jesus, died so that the church that you love could be established here in this city and in cities all over the world. And I pray right now that by your spirit, you would speak to each and every one of us today as individuals. Challenge us. Open our hearts to hear you, to receive you. Challenge us as families and challenge us as the family of God, I pray. Make us into builders, builders of the kingdom in Jesus' name. Firstly, godly concern. Nehemiah had God's heart. We too need to have God's heart. Now, Nehemiah, it turns out, is quite an important guy, okay? But it's not until the end of chapter 1, right at the end in verse 11, where we really see who Nehemiah actually is. He doesn't tell us at the beginning, but he tells us at the end. And it's, if you like, it's one of those throwaway statements or throwaway verses that the Bible is full of, and yet, actually, they're not throwaway. They're full of incredible significance. It says... I, at the time, was the cupbearer to the king. What does that mean? <laughs> it's a throwaway statement, but it's loaded. You know, Nehemiah was a guy like many of us, guy, girl, whatever, living in a major city. Susa was the winter residence of the king of Persia, where he stayed during the winter. He was an important guy in an important city, and he had an important position. He was the cupbearer. His position was a position of influence. His position was a position of significance and great responsibility. And many of you here right now, I know, have positions of great responsibility. You shoulder great responsibility. No, I don't want to bite it, Hopi. <laughs> I am, um, Susie and I were with Nemo the other day, a couple of weeks ago, chatting to her. I don't know if she's here today. And Nemo was telling us about a recent promotion she's got and telling us about all the responsibility that she shoulders and will shoulder in her position in the coming future. And I was thinking, wow, that's a lot of responsibility. And she serves us in the church and she's studying. And thinking, how does she do all that? Many of you are in positions where you're so busy and your position is so important that you feel like if you take your eye off the ball for two minutes, things will fall apart. Somebody might die. Nehemiah was literally in that position, okay? He was a cupbearer. 
he was close to the king, and everything that the king was going to partake in, food and drink-wise, Nehemiah would taste beforehand to make sure it wasn't poisoned. The king had to trust him completely. And furthermore, Nehemiah really had to trust everybody around him. Everybody that had access to the king's cup, Nehemiah needed to make sure that they were trustworthy and faithful. If he took his eye off the ball for two minutes, he literally could end up dead. He is a man in a city with a powerful position. He is in a position of significance and great responsibility, like many of you. He probably enjoyed a lot of the comforts that came along with being in the king's courts, but he definitely shouldered much of the responsibility that came with that position as well. However, even though Nehemiah was well-established in the city of man, his heart was clearly in another city. His heart was in the city of God. And we see that in chapter 1. Despite being rooted in the, in the kingdom of man, Nehemiah's heart was in the kingdom of God. He was situated in the city of man, but his treasure was in the city of God. In verse 2, we see a glimpse of just how much Nehemiah is concerned about the kingdom of God first and foremost. Two men come from Jerusalem. What's the first thing he asks them? What's the first thing he talks about? He says, how are the people of God doing? How is the city of God doing? His chief concern, despite all the responsibility he has in the world, is the kingdom of God and the people of God. Further to that, we see in verse 4 just how concerned and how passionate Nehemiah is about the kingdom of God because the report he receives is not good. These guys say the people who escaped the exile, the people back in Jerusalem, they're not doing well. The city of God is not doing well. The walls are destroyed. It's not doing well. Nehemiah's reaction is so telling. It reveals his heart. He says this, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When's the last time you had a reaction like that to bad news? When's the last time you had a reaction like that when you saw that the church or the kingdom of God wasn't doing well? or that the kingdom of man was somehow prevailing? When's the last time you had a reaction like that? Here's the thing. We are all builders, right? We'll all be, we're all building something. We're all building something. And the thing that we will give our lives to building will always be the thing that we prioritize the most. It will be the thing in which we have stored our treasure. It will be the thing that we are most concerned about. It's a reality. You see, if you value comfort, in the West, in the UK, we really do value our comfort. If you value comfort the most, you will structure your life in a way to maximize your comfort in this life, won't you? You will structure your life in a way to make it as comfortable as possible. You'll say, I'll give as much of as myself as this, but no more, because then it starts to invade into my comfort. If you value money the most, you will structure your life in a way to make as much of it as possible. You will build as much wealth as you possibly can. If you value your reputation the most, if that's your chief concern, you will spend your life building your legacy at the expense of everything else. You see, these things are not bad things. Okay? Education, money, whatever it is, jobs, they're not bad things. But it's what we value and what we are chiefly concerned about that is key. Because whatever we are chiefly concerned about is the thing that we will give our lives to building at the expense of everything else at the expense of family or relationships or the kingdom of God. What are you chiefly concerned about this morning? Nehemiah was chiefly concerned about the kingdom of God. 
What God was concerned about, Nehemiah was concerned about. City Hill, if we're going to build a church in this city, we have to have God's heart. The things that concern God must chiefly concern us. Nehemiah was a builder because he had God's heart. Secondly, Nehemiah had godly confidence. His hope and his confidence were secured in God. Let me ask you a question. We've been talking this morning briefly about setbacks, um, opposition in our lives, haven't we? When you face opposition, when you face setbacks, when you face bad news, how do you, how do you process that? How do you deal with opposition? How do you deal with setbacks? There are two ways that we can do this, I believe. Firstly, we can process setback, we can process opposition, we can process bad news through the lenses of the world. What I mean by that is, if a setback comes our way, or bad news comes our way, and things look impossible, it looks like it's the end. If we process them through the lens of the world, we'll look at what is natural out there and we'll say, you know what, that's the way the world works. Yes, this situation is impossible. There's nothing that can be done if we look at things through the lens of the world. We will agree and we will lose hope. The other way we can do it, though, the other way we can process setbacks and bad news and opposition is to process it through the lens of Scripture, to view it through the lens of Scripture. What I mean by that is we look at a situation that might be hopeless, we look at a situation that might be impossible, and we bring it before God in Scripture. And we process it through the lens of what Scripture says. We bring it to God in prayer. We remind ourselves of who God is. We remind ourselves of what God has promised to do. And we set our confidence in who God is. And we find our strength in what God has promised to do. There are two ways of dealing with opposition and setbacks. Through the lens of the world or through the lens of Scripture. Nehemiah receives bad news, doesn't he? He processes that bad news through the lens of Scripture. Let's see what he does. In verse 5, he says this. He receives this terrible news. He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. He does two things right here. He takes this terrible news, this impossible situation, and first of all, he remembers who God is. Through scripture, he remembers who God is. He says this, God, you are great and you are awesome. The situation is bleak, but God, you are great and you are awesome. This morning, if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no situation that is bigger than God. There is no situation that is more awesome than God. There is no situation that is impossible in God. Nehemiah knew that because he viewed this situation through the lens of Scripture and the truth of who God is. The second thing he does is he remembers what God does. In Scripture, he remembers what God does. He says he is faithful. He keeps covenant promises and he loves us. Steadfast love. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you have a God fighting for you who keeps his promises. If God has made you a promise, if there's a promise in Scripture, you can bet God will keep that promise. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, God's steadfast love is for you right now. That's what Nehemiah does. He remembers who God is. He remembers what God does. He sets his hope steadfastly and firmly in God. 
Verse 8 says this, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, uh, sorry, unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. The next thing he does is he reminds God of what God has promised to do. Have you ever done that? Have you come to God in prayer and reminded God, not that he needs reminding, of what he's promised to do? It's what Nehemiah does. He comes and says, God, you said that you would exile us if we were unfaithful. We were unfaithful. He confesses the sins of Israel, of his family. Then he reminds God and says, but you said you would regather us, that you would make for yourself a people, that you would make your name famous. He reminds God of what God has promised to do. And because of that, Nehemiah has confidence in God. You see, he doesn't weep and he doesn't mourn because he's hopeless. These are not the prayers of a hopeless man. These are the prayers of a man who weeps because what God has promised has not yet come to pass. These are the prayers of a man whose hope is in God, whose hope is in the character and the promises of God, the never-changing character and the never-changing promises of God. Let me ask you again. How do you process challenges and difficulties in your life? How do you process setbacks? You see, when we build a church, when you give yourself to building the church, you can guarantee that setbacks will come your way. Just the way it is, we have an enemy. I know that many of you are processing setbacks right now. Some of you even this week have had bad news. How are you processing that? Through the lens of the world, which tells you, yeah, you're right, it's impossible. Or through the lens of Scripture, which says you have a great God and a God who keeps his promises and steadfast love towards you. You know, I've known Harold for a long time. I've known Harold since the beginning of, of Creek. And throughout that time, Harold, as we've served together in building the church, and throughout that time, Harold has, has faced setbacks, haven't you? Many setbacks in work, even in health. And we're, we've got an eldership WhatsApp group because we have a WhatsApp group for everything these days, right? We have an eldership WhatsApp group and Harold will post things and we all do if he's facing a setback. And every time Harold has posted about a setback on that group, I've noticed you quote scripture and you quote the promises of God and you declare your faith, your faith in the steadfastness of God and his word and his promises. That's Nehemiah. And that's the reason that Harold is still serving with us today, building the church in Dubai, despite many, many setbacks. And that was Nehemiah. And that's what we all need to do. If we're going to build the church, our, our confidence has to be in God and God alone. Number three, Nehemiah has godly conviction. He demonstrates godly conviction. Nehemiah demonstrates the ability to say yes to the big asks of God. Are you ready to say yes to the big asks of God? Are we ready to say yes to the big asks of God? Hannah and I were recently with Grace. I don't know if Grace is here. Grace and Ben, maybe not. Grace and Ben haven't been in the church very long, but since they've been with us, Grace has really given herself to serving, uh, especially with our social media. She's been amazing. She's brought her skills from the world in marketing into the church, and she has really helped us step up our social media in a big way. And... Um, Grace, Hannah and I were sitting with them, and uh, we were talking about decision-making. 
We're talking about how to go about making decisions. And as we were thinking about it, and I was thinking about it, I said, look, there's two types of people, really, when it comes to making decisions, okay? There are opportunity-driven people, and there are values-driven people. You'll be one or the other in reality. You'll be an opportunities-driven person or a values-driven person. See, opportunity-driven people, they're very quick to say yes. They're very slow to follow through. <laughs> okay, they're quick to say yes, they're slow to follow through. They're super enthusiastic about something today. It's like the best thing. It's what God has called them to do. They're all about it. Tomorrow, they're super enthusiastic about something else. And what they were enthusiastic about yesterday, uh, not so enthusiastic anymore. Because what they've come across today is better. It's a better opportunity. They don't follow through. They don't stick at things for very long because they're opportunity-driven. And they always have a good justification for dropping what they were going to do yesterday. <laughs> if you come across people like this, maybe you're like this. <laughs> they always go after the next big, great, exciting, easy, attractive opportunity. The reason they do that is because they are not values-driven. Their decisions are not based out of rooted in and kind of structured by their values or informed by their values. Often they don't even know what their values are. Values-driven people are very different. See, values-driven people make decisions based in their values, based on what they prioritize. Values-driven people make decisions out of what they prioritize, out of what they value, and they know what they value, and they know what they prioritize. Their yes is yes, their no is a no. They see things through for the long haul, come what may. And you know what? In life, what may always comes, doesn't it? What may always comes. But they see things through, come what may. They're able to say no to opportunities that look great if they don't line up with their values. They're able to say yes to really tough, big asks. And they're able to follow through. They're able to demonstrate conviction. Now, what is conviction? Conviction is a fixed or firm belief. A conviction is a fixed, unwavering, unmoving, or firm belief. It is a steadfastness of position, come what may. And by the end of this chapter, Nehemiah makes a values-driven, conviction-based decision. Okay, Nehemiah makes a conviction-based, values-driven decision. You see, he loves the kingdom, and he prioritizes what God prioritizes. He's going to let go of what he has in the world, and he is going to go and say yes to what God is asking him to do. He's going to go and build. He's going to sacrifice. See, he's seen the need. He's seen the gaps in the wall. It's broken his heart because it breaks God's heart. And now he is going to respond to that need. He is a man who is shaped by his values. He is a man that values the kingdom of God. You see, building the kingdom of God will mean responding to the big cause of God on our lives, individually, as families, and as a corporate family of God. In the coming year, many of you as individuals will be called upon to say yes to some big asks in God. Are you ready for that? Because it might mean saying no to some other things so that you can say yes to what God is calling you to do. In the coming year, we as a people, I guarantee you, will be called upon to say yes to some big asks of God. 
It will mean being stretched. It will mean our faith is tested at times. But if we are values-driven, if our conviction is in God, we can say yes and we can follow through. Kingdom builders are people that say yes to the big asks of God. They're the people that follow through with conviction. But how do we get there? If we're going to be kingdom builders, we need to have God's heart. What concerns God needs to concern us, chiefly, primarily. If we're going to be kingdom builders, our confidence needs to be firmly rooted in who God is and what he says he will do. He says he will build his church here. If we're going to be kingdom builders, we need to be a people of conviction, ready to say yes and follow through on it. But how do we get there? How do we get there? The thing is, Nehemiah was no superman, was he? He was no superhuman. The reality is God doesn't pick supermen, superwomen. God picks ordinary men and women like you and me, most of the time unqualified. And what he does is, by the power of his spirit, he transforms us, he shapes us, he changes us, and he gets us ready to serve him. He gets us ready to build his kingdom. Nehemiah wasn't a superman. I'm not superman. You're not superman, superwoman. But it's okay, because God transforms us and shapes us. What Nehemiah does, though, is he demonstrates a character. He demonstrates a character that was shaped and formed through deep, intimate relationship with the living God. Nehemiah demonstrates a character that is deeply shaped and formed through deep, intimate relationship with the true and living God. That's what Nehemiah demonstrates. And we know this for two reasons, okay? Firstly, look at how he prays. His prayer is full of scripture. He's quoting Leviticus. He's quoting Deuteronomy. He's reminding God of what he's already said in scripture. He is like the man in Psalm 1 who has just meditated on the word of God day and night. He is like the man who is rooted by streams of living water. In that psalm, it says that that person, that person who meditates on scripture day and night, he prospers in all that he does. Now, the word there for prosper is the same word that Nehemiah uses when he asks that God would give him success when he goes to the king. He is a man who had bathed himself in scripture, and it had formed his character. Secondly, look at the way he prays. Apparently, he prays for four months. He prays and fasts for four months. It wasn't a quick down on his knees, pray up to the king. This is four months, I believe. I guarantee you, you don't go from no prayer to four months of prayer do you? I don't know about you, but when I've had a dry time in prayer and I think I need to get back to praying, I get back to praying and I'm praying fervently. I look at my watch and what feels like two hours has been two minutes because prayer is a battle. You don't go from no prayer to four months of prayer. Nehemiah had cultivated a life of prayer, a deep life of prayer, and it had shaped him. Nehemiah's character was shaped and formed by consistent encounter with God. And so ours needs to be too. As I end this, I want to tell a story. It's a story I think probably a lot of you will have heard. It's quite a famous story. Um, it's told by Bill Hybels, and he for a long time pastored a big church called Willow Creek in the United States. He's written quite a few books. And um, this story is on YouTube. You can watch it on YouTube. I've seen it on YouTube a few times. I've heard it preached a couple of times as well. But it's a great story. And Bill Hybels, he tells the story of a man named Tom in his church at the early days when the church was first starting. Now, Tom had become a Christian 
um, Bill had led him to the Lord. Bill had baptized him. He hadn't been a Christian very long. And one day in conversation with Tom, Tom says to Bill, Bill, I just don't have time to spend with God. This guy was a young, ambitious, thriving, advertising executive in a major city. Okay? He's a lot like many of you. He's a lot like many of you doing really well in your job in the city. He, had a long, he said, I've got a long commute to work. My job is ridiculously demanding. I don't have time to meet with God. I don't have time to spend with God. Possibly many of you can relate to this. You commute from, from Sharjah for about four hours. You work very hard. You commute four hours back. When do I have time to spend with God? And Bill says to him, he says, look, he says, the one thing I know is if I value something, I will make time for it. If I value something, I'll make time for it. If I don't value it, I won't make time for it. He said, I value time with God, and so I make time with it for, uh, for God. I make time for it. And this guy looked at him as if to say, you don't really understand the world that I'm in, and he goes. And he doesn't see him for months, and he thinks I probably offended him. He's not coming back. That happens sometimes. <laughs> but then months later, he sees this guy. He comes back to church, and he comes up to Bill, and Bill says, as he comes up to him, he notices this guy looks different. When he starts talking, the way he talks is different. Something has changed about this guy. And he says to Bill, he says, you know, he said, a few months ago, you challenged me to, to meet with God. You challenged me to do that. He said, I want to invite you around to my house for dinner. So he invited Bill and his wife around for dinner, and they went around and, and had dinner with, with this guy, Tom, and his wife. And when Bill came in, he took Bill off to one corner, and he said, come and look at this. He said, look at this chair. He said, you challenged me to meet with God every single day. And you said that if I want to do that, I should create a nice envir environment for myself that I enjoy. I should find a view that I enjoy looking at. And that's the, that's the way that I will end up doing it consistently. He said, I love rocking chairs. I bought myself a beautiful rocking chair. I love the view in my backyard. I've set it here by the window. And he says, do you know what I now do? He says, I get up every morning, half an hour earlier. I make a coffee because it's early. I sit in my chair. I look at the view. I get the Bible. I read God's word. I try to make sense of it. I ask him to speak to me through his word. I meditate on it. I reflect on it. I try and apply it to my life as an, uh, an advertising executive in the city. I write some thoughts down in a notebook. I pray. I ask God to make himself more real in my life. I ask for God's presence to be more real in my life. He said, I do it every day. I've been doing it for a while now. At that point, his wife comes in and she says, you know what? Since he's been sitting in that chair, he's a changed man. His life has been transformed. He's more loving. He's more centered. He's more kind. Something is happening to him in that chair. You see, what Tom had done is he had created, he had carved out for himself a regular and consistent meeting with the living God, with Jesus. It had become a habit. It had become a pattern that he had fallen into. But the story doesn't end there. Because this kind of thing changes and transforms us. Months later, Tom comes to Bill and he says, Bill, I'm having my meetings with God in my chair and I feel God stirring me. And I feel that God is telling me to leave my job in advertising. And Bill looks at this young, high-flying, high-earning advertising executive and says, what are you going to do? He says, I feel I need to build a church with you. There's a church plant at that time. 
It was small, it was in the early stages. Bill says to him, you do realize that nobody's getting paid here, right? He says, yeah, I realize that. He said, I've made a lot of money in advertising. And I can cover myself and my family for a while. I need to build the church with you. God is stirring me. You see, what had happened? His priorities had changed. What was now chiefly concerning him was different. Where his treasure was, was now different. What he was going to build with his life was changing. His priorities were different. He came on board. Bill says he served so well. He was one of the best people they had serving with him. Then, a while later, maybe years later, he comes back into Bill's office. He says, Bill, I'm still having my meetings with God, and I feel God stirring me again. There's a church plant taking place in another city that you know about, and I feel God telling me to uproot my family, move, and go and help establish and build that church. He said, I'm going to have to go back into advertising. I'm going to have to support myself, the family, and support the church, but I'm ready to do it. Bill says, are you sure you're ready to do it? He says, you know what? God is stirring me. I'm ready to do it. And so he does. He packs up his family. He moves to a different city. He goes back into advertising. He makes a lot of money. He gives most of his money to the church so that they can build the church. And they build an incredible church. You see what happened? He was able and he was ready to say yes to the big asks of God. He had a conviction as to what he was called to now as a Christian. He was convicted about building the church. He was able to say yes. He was able to make big decisions. And he was able to follow through. And he worked and he worked and he supported the church. And they built a great church. And it was in that same chair, a while later, that he was able to sit and through the word of God and through prayer, process and come to terms with a medical report that said he had been diagnosed with aggressive cancer. He was able to process it. You see, his confidence was now in God. During that time, he didn't quit his job. He kept working. He kept building the church. He kept building the church. He kept building the church until he ended up in hospital. And his one regret about being in hospital was that he didn't have his chair with him. And not long after, because the cancer was so aggressive, he died. And Bill took his funeral. He said, I took his funeral. And afterwards, I was chatting to his wife. And we got chatting about the chair. And she said, you know, she said, that chair changed his life. He became a different man altogether. She said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to pass that chair down to our children to our grandchildren, in the hopes that someone will sit in it and, like Tom, have their lives completely transformed for God. You see, what had happened in that chair was that Tom had had a daily encounter with God. It had changed his priorities. He'd been given God's heart. His confidence became rooted in God. And his conviction was in God. He was able to say yes to the big things of God. He was transformed from being Tom, the advertising executive, into Tom, the kingdom builder. I guarantee you Nehemiah had a similar chair. And he was transformed from Nehemiah, the ordinary cupbearer, into Nehemiah, the kingdom builder, a significant man of God. Let me close with this. God wants to do the same with you. He wants to do the same with me. Really, he wants to do the same with you. Ray, the same with you. Charity, the same with you. All of us. He wants to do the same thing with us. He wants to transform us from ordinary people into significant kingdom builders. And he'll do it through encounter with the living God, Jesus Christ.
Let me ask you a question. Bill asks this at the end of his story. He says, where is your chair? Where is your chair? Now, the point isn't what kind of chair it is. The point even isn't, where the, isn't even where the chair is. For me, I sit at the end of my dining table at home. It's not a great chair. It's a pretty average dining table. I do it early in the morning before Hope gets up. And I have a bit of time. And then I hear this kind of tiny feet coming along. And that's it then. Concentration is gone. I do it early in the morning. You know, your chair might be in your local Starbucks. Your chair might be in your car if you can arrive at work 20 minutes early after your long commute. Sit there with some worship music on and meet with God. The point is, where is the place of transformation in your life? Where is it that you meet with God, open yourself up to the power of God to change and transform you? Where do you become more aware of, your, of his presence in your life? of his lingering presence throughout the day? Where is it that your decision-making, that your thinking is shaped by God? You see, before we follow Nehemiah to the wall, and we're going to follow him to the wall over these coming weeks, before we follow him to the wall, we need to, to find our chair. Before we follow him to the wall, we need to allow God to transform us in that place of transformation. But let me warn you, the chair always does lead to the wall, okay? Because God transforms us for mission. He transforms us to be significant kingdom builders. He doesn't transform us for nothing. He transforms us for a purpose. The chair is where we start, but the chair will always lead to the wall. And we have to keep coming back to the chair. <laughs> I want to challenge each and every one of us, especially myself, first and foremost myself. Where is your chair? Where will it be over this coming summer as we look at Nehemiah over this summer season? Look at it with us in the chair. Do it in the chair. Let me ask you a question. What would your life be like? What would your walk with God be like if you were to give time for a significant, regular meeting with Jesus every day over the summer? What would it be like if you did it for two months, five months, a year? Five years, ten years, what kind of person would Jesus transform you into? Let's pray. Why don't you just close your eyes and bow your heads with me. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that ultimately this is all about Jesus. It's about his kingdom. It's about his rule and reign. It's about his church being built, a significant church in this city of Dubai that becomes a blessing to the city and a blessing to the nations. I thank you, God, that you have gathered us together as a family right now to build your church in this city. I pray that through this book and through encounter with you, you would transform us, you would change us into people, into a family of significance for this time and place. You have brought us here right now. You have brought us here to this place for a purpose. I pray you would transform us by your spirit. Help us to find our chair. Meet with us there, I pray. And help us to build. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Visit www.cityhillglobal.com to find out more about City Hill Church.